Scheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Will Bode. And I'm Dan Epps. So, Will, we're starting finally to be in our sweet spot when the court starts giving us opinions that we can talk about, which is just so much easier than having to break down cases before they've been decided. Yeah, a lot less to read. Yeah. Although maybe if I was doing my job well, I'd still read everything for those. The, the, we do have the one we do we did get. We got this one opinion. It actually is one where I think we've both done all the reading and and listening, so we're well prepared. And that's the Atchison case about ADA tester standing and mootness. We will come back to that, but it's a case that we talked about pretty extensively, maybe uh, maybe two episodes ago. And so those of you who are regular listeners but haven't been listening super recently. Maybe you want to pause here, go back, listen to that episode, and then uh, and then you can find out the ending to the story. But before we get there, it's been, you know, it's been a few weeks, so there's always some stuff that's happened. Biggest thing, maybe uh, the death of Justice, uh, retired Justice Andrew Day O'Connor. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, um, she'd been retired from public life for a few years. Yeah. Maybe. So she left the court when Justice Alito was confirmed in early 2006. Over the years since then, she developed dementia, and yeah, I think 2018 is when she said she was kind of withdrawing from public, and so you know we hadn't certainly hadn't seen any of her since then. And I, I don't think she'd been super public for a few years prior to that withdrawal either, and maybe some 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 stuff here and there, but I think she had sort of gradually been reducing her uh, appearances. But but for a really big chunk of time, you know, she was the most powerful justice on the court. She was really at the middle of the court. It was the O'Connor court before it was the the Kennedy court. She provides decisive votes in any number of huge cases. Mm -hmm. And of course, the first woman on the Supreme Court. And I think for a lot of this time, people would have called her the most powerful woman in America. Yes, I think that uh, that seems clearly right. A very, you know, amazing career. She, you know, goes to Stanford Law School, you know, famously when she graduates, uh, she's unable to get a job in private practice. She's just offered positions as a secretary, but ultimately builds a career for herself as an attorney and then subsequently becomes a state senator, then becomes a state trial court judge, then a state uh, intermediate appellate court judge. This is all in Arizona. And then Ronald Reagan, nineteen eighty campaign for president, uh, promises to appoint the first woman to the Supreme Court. And he looks far and wide and ends up, you know, I think that at the time there was a relatively small pool of plausible candidates who were Republicans, right? He wasn't going to appoint a Democrat and who were women and who had judicial experience or some other uh, experience that would have made them a plausible Supreme Court pick. And so uh, she gets the nod and, you know, certainly, you know, had a, you know, impressive career on the court for 24 years, something like that. And, you know, is, is, you know, plays a pivotal role in a bunch of important cases. You know, I think a lot of people criticize her jurisprudence, sort of like nerdy law types like us who want, you know, really clear rules. And she was more of a kind of more in the kind of Kennedy case by case, common law judge mold, probably more so even than, than Kennedy was. You know, there's an interesting paper I read once. Did you ever see this, Will? It's an article about authorship of Supreme Court opinions and ghostwriting by yes. Jeffrey Rosenthal and Albert Yoon, where yes. they did this kind of language uh, analysis. And this paper is more than a decade old, so it wouldn't surprise me if you know the state of the art has moved on since then. But they went through them and they tried to identify, you know, which justices had the most distinctive style term to term suggesting they did more of the writing themselves and whose styles, use of words, various markers that they this algorithm looks at, which were most variable term to term. And I, I think they concluded that Justice O'Connor's were the most variable. Justice Kennedy's also were considered pretty highly pretty variable. One plausible but not, you know, inevitable thing you can infer from that is maybe that she was leaning more on her clerks and doing less in the way of authoring them and revising them herself as compared to somebody like, 
you know, Justice Scalia, who has, you know, is going to have a clearer voice that comes through uh, potentially. What, well, what did you, you make of that? Well, you might imagine that there's a trade-off sort of when your votes are really consequential because you're the, you're the swing vote. You might imagine that your job is to pay more attention to your votes. The other way of putting it is if you're just a Scalia and so your votes are kind of overdetermined because you're like on the side of the court where you're anything the court is wondering about, you're pretty consistently on one side, even if there are yeah. other cases, the court's not taking that hard for you. So you've got to kind of make a name for yourself through, through what you say. But if you, and or if you have a, I don't mean this as an insult, but you have a slightly more political approach to the job. Like if you think of the job more the way like a governor or a, a chief legislator would think of their job, that's a pretty normal way to proceed, right? As you get all sorts of drafts from your team and a big part Con- of your job compromise. is to like, you know, to make sure you, you control the vision and you have to exercise judgment about when you go which direction. But we don't expect Joe Biden to be like penning his speeches himself or the, all the drafts to have the same voice, right? Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, so looking at, you know, that's one plausible hypothesis. Looking at the chart in this paper, you know, one thing that does stick out is that uh, Justice Thomas, though, you know, he's someone who who doesn't fit into that hypothesis that you offered. He actually has a fairly high variability score, very mm-hmm. close to Justice Kennedy's and just, you know, a bit below, a bit behind Justice uh, O'Connor's. And he's someone who's not in the middle of the court, you know, not doing compromising at all, just sort of stating out his views. Yeah. So, you know, does that suggest, you know, clerks play a bigger role for his opinions? Possibly, maybe yes, maybe no. Certainly, right. I would say he has a less distinctive style than than Justice Scalia. Right. But maybe also some of this is that, yeah, if you don't if you don't cultivate a distinctive style and if you have some kind of a mavericky streak, which Justice Thomas does in his very different way and Justice O'Connor did, I don't know, maybe that maybe those two things combined make it uh, make it show up differently. I'm not sure. So this is kind of related. I don't know if you saw this post from Rick Pildes, I think a tweet on the website formerly known as Twitter that referenced some earlier things he'd written uh, about the concept of judicial courage. But he wrote after Justice O'Connor died that Justice O'Connor embodied judicial courage as I define it. It's not casting votes you believe that are unpopular. It's doing that when they are unpopular within the reference groups you rely on for validation. And so what made Justice O'Connor different, he thought, than somebody like Justice Thomas, who casts plenty of unpopular votes, is that she didn't have a team of people who thought everything she did was right. Both people on the right and the left were mad at her a lot. And that's, as he said, she did what she thought was right and did not care about criticism, including from within her own camp. I think that's really important. I think that's that's right. I'd want to, I mean, I'd want to think a little bit more about exactly, you know, who the audience was that she would have been speaking to at that mm-hmm. time and who were the kind of people she would have looked to or not looked to for approval. But I do think in the bigger picture, it captures something I think that's important about, you know, the current state of constitutional law in that we have these increasingly, you know, kind of polarized legal spheres that are going to, you know, cheerlead and criticize particular justices as the case may be. And, you know, I've written this elsewhere. I think that's a real problem because, it means that there's, you know, increasingly few justices who can kind of hold together that middle, establish some kind of legal common ground, uh, which I think is necessary for there to be a rule of law, some sort of common ground, which you know we can all, or at least enough people on on sort of both ideological sides can agree that the law dictates, rather than just having you know the Democratic version of the law and the Republican version of the law. Yeah, who do you think? I mean, we could do this with numbers, but that'll be boring. From your watching the court now, who is the most O'Connor? Who has the most courage in this sense? Who's the justice who the, is the least in a box? The chief, right? Is that, I think that might be right. Yeah. I mean, like, certainly. I mean, like, I mean, he enraged people just with the one vote in the, you know, NFIB versus Sebelius, the healthcare case. Sure. And right, that, I mean, that alone, right? I mean, I think that yeah. answers the question without knowing anything else. And, you know, in Dobbs, he didn't even vote the wrong way, so to speak, but he didn't join it and people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. does does courage matter when your vote doesn't matter? Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Maybe not. Because it mattered in Sebelius and it mattered in FIB. Right. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't matter as much when, when your vote doesn't matter. All then also, like, 
what's the point of people hating you if you're not even accomplishing anything? But it'd be different, you know. So there, there are some justices who who are like that. You know, Justice Blackman was a Republican appointee and had plenty of votes that enraged the right, but he had so many votes that enraged the right that he's just sort of welcome to the left. Yeah, yeah. He just, I mean, he becomes a liberal. You know? And I take it the chief, you know, has not managed to to complete that circle and has no interest in completing that circle. So he still writes, you know, students for fair admissions and other opinions that make liberals mad too. The other funny thing, it's very different from the version you described is Justice Gorsuch, right? So he, nobody would call him a moderate or like part of a sensible coalition or anything like that. But he does, he, he's the other justice who has like high stakes, like Bostock, uh, maybe yeah. McGirt in the other Indian cases. Yeah, He's willing to to piss off his team even. And, you know, it's like all these conservative politicians started writing like, we shouldn't be textuals anymore because of Bostock opinions. Like it was a real yeah. Yeah, maybe that takes courage. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how much the Indian law cases fit into this because I feel like they're you know decidedly of secondary or tertiary importance to the kind of big audience that cares the most about these things. Mm-hmm. I think kind of the you know you know the the FedSoc industrial complex that you deny exists. You know, I think that the there's maybe a little bit more of an eye roll toward mm-hmm. the Indian law stuff. Bostock, yeah, totally different story. Yeah. Um, people are, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks were really mad about that and, you know, thought that, that, you know, he had hoodwinked them, you know, not a, he's not a conservative. Yeah. So, yeah. And I guess if it's just Bostock and it's a one-off, then that's, that's different than if that becomes a theme. Well, just Wait, can, can, we, can we, can we, yeah. can we say one other thing? Oh yeah. Go ahead. Did you remember that former chief justice Rehnquist proposed marriage to her? Oh yeah. Yeah, this this is something that it was kind of known for many many years that they had dated in law school, which I don't think is just a coincidence. I think he had actually you know put in a good word for her with the Reagan administration, so it's not you know makes it make a little bit more sense. But uh, he had been first in the class; she graduates third in the class. I guess I don't I don't the the, the person who was second in the class is is lost to history, or at least is you know not on the Supreme Court. His name is known. I just forget. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, exactly. That's the point. That's the point. <laughs> it's not lost history. It's yeah. Lost I mean, I'm us. sure somebody knows, but but you don't know and you don't care. But he actually, in 2018, you know, in a someone was writing a, a biography of her, you know, found these letters, including one from Rehnquist, where she was already dating John O'Connor, uh, and Rehnquist was like, "Can we get married this summer?" And um, yeah, because she she declined or or pocket vetoed that suggestion. Yeah, I saw somebody make the interesting, you know, counterfactual history point. Also, that of course, had she said yes, she would not be on the Supreme Court. Oh yes, that that would. Frankquist almost certainly would have been, you know, yeah. on the court the same way. And then uh, a point having the first female justice be the wife of somebody who's already in the court probably would have been seen as not. It would, yeah, that would have probably not been the way, the right way to uh, to make that uh, first. Yeah. So so a good long term play. So I've been using, I promise this is relevant, I've been using AI to make Muppets out of Supreme Court justices. I know. I know. It's, this is this is like our dynamic. You were like texting me about like Article 3 and collateral estoppel and stuff. And I'm just like, shut up. Can, you, can I just show you these Muppets? But I think Twitter slash X, people that are still on there enjoyed them. Some people enjoyed them. Nobody, nobody said they didn't enjoy them. You didn't enjoy them? Not really. Really? Why? I don't know. They're too uh, frivolous for me. Do you think everything has to be substantive all the time? No, but you don't think we can laugh at? They were loving. I mean, they're not. They weren't. It wasn't mocking the justices. They're 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 loving. It's a, it's a little mocking. It's not. It's not like you know. I did it to everybody, but so I have a really good one for Justice O'Connor. But I I I my sense is maybe it's too soon to release that one into the wild. Uh, I don't know. It might be right. Okay, it might be right. Maybe people can tell me, um, but it, it was like that one came out as well as like probably better than any of the others. The Scalia um, moment was pretty good. Yeah. Even you can appreciate that a little bit, a little tiny I, bit. I'll grant you that. Okay. Wow, I'm so disappointed that you like, you don't like like funny stuff. Like, are we allowed to joke about Supreme Court justices at all? No, sure. Of course. You're allowed yeah. to do it. I don't disapprove. I didn't think you were like being disrespectful or anything. And if you're being disrespectful, it'll be fine. But I just... Do you, do you think we should just, you know, in, in your perfect world, we would maintain this area of, ser- area of seriousness at all times? No, no, no. I like jokes. Okay. Just not that one. Was it a joke? I don't know. It's just meant to amuse people. I think people people liked it. I got a lot of likes. Yeah. So, dis- so disappointed you don't like my creations. All right. Other stuff. Should I talk about some shadow docket? Yeah. Little, little shadow docket uh, going on. 
So I think on the day we released our last episode, I think it was on the day we released our last episode about this sort of scope of the injunction, statewide injunction, I guess, rather than nationwide injunction question involving the Hamburger Mary's establishment in Florida. I think shortly after our our episode came out, we got a ruling from the court, right? Yep. And as a as a reminder, you know, this is cert petition where the state of Florida was coming to the court um, and asking the court to narrow the scope of an injunction that had been granted by district court um, against Florida's new law, which is about you know prohibiting certain kinds of adult live performances, which are defined as sexually explicit shows that would be obscene in light of a child's age. And so this is, you know, this is going to be commonly referred to as kind of the anti-drag show law. And so Florida went to the, there was an injunction, Florida went to the Supreme Court, but did not brief the merits, right? Just said, look, we think we want you to come in and all we want you to do now, this is a preliminary stage, is uh, narrow the injunction. You can keep the injunction in place against the law with respect to this restaurant, right? But they've the district court has purported to enter, you know, in a universal injunction against the application of this law statewide. Please and, fix that. And their theory, which was sensible, was basically we don't think this establishment's violating the law anyway, so we don't think they should get an injunction, but we don't care so much. Yeah, but there might be some establishments that really are endangering the morals of children and uh we'd like to not have that off the table while we're waiting for this to get to get ironed out so i I love the disposition of this so the application of the stay presented justice thomas and by him referred to the court was denied justice thomas justice alito and justice gorsuch noted that they would grant the application for a stay no opinion and then there was a statement of justice kavanaugh with whom justice barrett joined except for footnote one respected the denial of the application of the stay and there are a lot of i think nothing exactly new in here but there are a lot of reminders of interesting aspects of the court's uh, remedies and shadow docket practice. Can, I, can so, I say one sort of totally frivolous thing? Sure. Which is that usually in Supreme Court opinions where there's only one footnote, the court assigns an asterisk to them rather than having them be numbered. Good point. This seems to be a mistake or well, maybe some yeah. Kavanaugh preference. Because it's footnote one, it, but there is no footnote two. Yeah. I wonder if it's just a mistake in numbering or if there used to be a footnote two. That was deleted. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't. Fix and they it. forgot to remember. That's Ooh. possible. No, that's a great catch. That's a great. That's that's not frivolous. That's the kind of deep, <laughs> deep cut Supreme Court yeah opinion analysis people count on us for. Yeah, that's that's why they pay me uh, the big bucks to do this podcast. I thought you were going to do another Muppet thing. <laughs> I uh, have actually tried pretty hard to get a Kavanaugh Muppet. He's just a little bit too much kind of a generic looking white guy. And it just, the AI that I'm using has not succeeded in giving me something distinctive. He's Muppet proof. Yeah. The Barrett, I've got an okay one. Again, not great. So I haven't done anything with those. So Justice Kavanaugh makes two points, one of which I think we mentioned before, I'm sort of predicted and one of which maybe we didn't. So one point he makes uh, that we mentioned before was that, you know, this is a first amendment case. And potentially that makes the issue kind of more complicated because the First Amendment has its own rules of overbreadth, where it's like in First Amendment terms, sometimes more okay to grant relief to non-parties because the First Amendment has its own special doctrines. Yeah, which Justice Thomas has criticized. I mean, which you know, which are, are not impervious, but just make the whole thing, as he calls it, a, a, an imperfect vehicle for considering the general question of when the district court can join non-parties. Yeah. The other point he makes resurrects of you. He and Justice Barrett articulated a couple of years ago in one of these vaccine candidate cases about the shadow docket, which is that the court should a preliminary question in granting like an injunctive relief in these cases is whether the issue is cert worthy. Yeah. So if the issue is not cert worthy, then the fact that you seek an injunction doesn't make it cert worthy. So those two points together mean this is a bad vehicle for the nationwide injunction question. Therefore, the nationwide injunction question is not statewide injunction question is not independently certain in this case therefore i'm not going to vote to grant it i take it even though he or justice spirit or both might ultimately think that yeah. you should stay it yeah basically put differently he's saying we're not going to do kind of error correction on the shadow docket we're right. going to sort of scrupulously maintain the standard that we only provide this extraordinary relief kind of in aid of our ultimate certiorari repellent jurisdiction 
Yeah. Which does, I mean, certainly does not plausibly describe many of the court's practices, at least in, in some cases over recent yeah. years. I mean, we can certainly, you know, identify many places where it looks like the court kind of intervenes um, right. to do something on the shadow docket in a case where like, you know, the underlying, you know, basically what's going on is someone is saying, you know, the district court did something crazy and yeah. you're not really going to grant cert on this big issue, but can you just fix it? Right. Well, I scrupulously maybe giving them too much okay. credit, but All right. I, I do think when Barrett and Kavanaugh issued this earlier opinion in Doe versus Mills or Doe's versus Mills, I think that was seen as as sort of a reset and a break yeah. from what they've been doing. So I do think since then, at least those justices have been a little more abstemious about, about error correction on the shadow docket. But there's also the problem that the court does sometimes just grant cert for error correction. Like there are both some yeah. reversals and just like, this is crazy and the SG wants us to grant cert, so we'll grant cert type cases. Or the state wants us to grant cert. So it's not like, it's like we still will do error correction on the shadow docket. It just has to be error correction of the kind of error correction that we do on the cert docket. Yeah. Which is sort of unprincipled and hard to totally predict. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think if you're Florida, you, you kind of hope here that even though you're not squarely you know, bringing the merits in front of the court now, I presume the strategy there would be let's wait and kind of do that when we're really read, prepared to do it because we don't want to risk getting a bad ruling on the merits question now when we haven't you know lined up all our ducks. But maybe you still hope that the merits are such that they might cause some of the conservative justices to want to give you this relief. And certainly, New Florida did get three votes here. Yeah. No, and you might and you might want a different defendant. I don't know. Like in free speech cases, it sometimes matters a lot what the facts are. But yeah, it seems to frame the court's intuitions about the the breadth of the law. Yeah, the hamburger uh, Mary's in St. Louis closed during COVID. By the way, I, I run okay. that down. You track it down. Yeah, yeah, you gotta go to Kansas City. <laughs> I guess, although the their website is kind of you know clearly very out of date, so I, I have no idea which ones are actually open. Maybe this is the only one. Yeah, and then there's also footnote one, which I enjoyed, which is where the, it should be footnote star, as you say, where just as Kavanaugh says that importantly, the issue, the nationwide injunction issue or the statewide injunction issue, is distinct from the issue of a court's setting aside a federal agency's rule under the APA. And Which is presented in this case? <laughs> no. Why is this footnote here? This has nothing to do with this. Is This is an, this is an APA case? This is this an administrative law case? I think this has nothing to do with the APA. This is just APA. completely irrelevant, right? I mean, it's not irrelevant, but it's just, it, it's like wildly, you know, wild dicta. Yes. I think it's, I think there's like signal and counter signal. I think it's like, to the extent you're reading this opinion as showing my potential interest in the nationwide injunction issue, that's correct. But I'm not interested in the APA issue. I think the APA is totally solid. I mean, I think part of the point and, of this And he's footnote, not just saying it's a different issue. He's just like very clearly saying, I totally disagree on the APA. The APA, like you can definitely do this. You can yes. vacate rules, which is not, not everybody agrees with. I think Justice Gorsuch seems to disagree with that. Yes. Right. Based on his opinion in the Texas case. Yes, exactly. And Kavanaugh even says, as a leading article explained, and then tries to rely on Jonathan Mitchell's The Writ of Erasure Fallacy, one of the font of these arguments, to support his view that the APA is different. So, yeah. But what's also great about this is then Justice Barrett refuses to join it. So this must have been very important to yeah. him in, the, <laughs> in it. Because Justice Barrett is much more open, and I think expressed her openness in the past, to the concerns that the about the understanding the APA. Yeah. Um, my colleague, uh, our, our most diligent listener, uh, Ron Levin said, uh, that, uh, that what he, Justice Kavanaugh says is, uh, this footnote is correct. You know, he, ha- he is on record as, you know, vehemently disagreeing with, uh, John Harrison's position, which is the kind of basis for the argument to the contrary. So score one for professor Levin. Yeah. He got Kavanaugh's vote. Yeah. But he uh, he cites to a well-known article by Mila Sahoni, also a listener of the show, who we've talked talked about, you know, maybe over the summer, talked about that article, The Power to Vacate a Rule. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. What else? We had another perhaps less consequential shadow docket thing, but um, this is, how do you say this? Do you just say the whole name? E.I. DuPont de Nemours and Company versus Abbott? I'm just going to say DuPont versus Abbott. Okay, is that the full name of like the Dupont Chemical Corporation or something? Or yeah, I think so. I mean, just as Kavanaugh just calls yeah. it, or sorry, just Thomas in his yeah. opinion just turns it Dupont. Yeah, just I calls it Dupont. I think it's just Dupont. Yeah, the chemical company. Okay, 
that's that's a lot better. And so this one is kind of interesting. This is a complicated CivPro FedCourts issue. So uh, plaintiffs uh, in uh, this this case sort of are suing DuPont on behalf of a class of 80,000 people for DuPont's discharge of a chemical that I'm not going to try to pronounce here. I don't know. Maybe I should. Perfluorooctanoic acid uh, into the Ohio River. You know, this is one of these, you know, big mass torts. You know, there's, you know, allegations that this caused all these uh, terrible things, diseases and so forth. Okay. These cases all go into a MDL, the multi-district litigation, which is kind of this special procedure. I don't know. Do you, I mean, this is kind of a civ pro thing. Do you, do you talk about these in fed courts when you teach it at all? Will? I don't, I don't talk about the fed courts or conflicts, but I'm also, I'm wondering if I should start. Yeah. I mean, they're very important, right? Yeah. Basically what happens is, you know, different cases, it's not, it's not like a, a single class action. Like there will be a bunch of different cases filed over the country, you know, uh, and, Rather than consolidating them as a class action, they'll kind of bring them together. There's this panel that kind of picks one court somewhere in the country and kind of like brings them together to kind of like address a lot of the kind of preliminary common issues and then so that the cases can be resolved most effectively. And they have these um, bellwether trials, Mm -hmm. you know, where you kind of pick a few of the cases and you kind of decide them up front and those are supposed to kind of like clarify, you know, and, and some, you know, sort of make this administratively simpler and resolving the rest of the cases. So a little different, like, you know, when these happen, you're not conjoining the cases such that when the resolution of one case automatically resolves all the claims, but it's sort of somewhere in between like a series of individual actions and, and uh, a single class action. Yeah. And often these facilitate settlement. They allow you to resolve a bunch of pretrial issues globally for, for everything. But in some cases like this one, Maybe the trial does let you resolve the other trials, right? So this gets us to the issue that that Dupont was complaining about, thinking of surpetition by Paul Clement, uh, and that attracted Justice Thomas's attention, which is that the district court and and, by, and we we should have said Justice Kavanaugh would have voted to grant this petition as well. Yeah. So we have a dissent by Justice Thomas, and then we noted that Justice Kavanaugh would have granted, but he doesn't endorse Justice Thomas's right dissent. Right. Well, we know Justice Kavanaugh wants to take more cases, so I'd be interested. Yeah. It might be that he, it might be he's often a vote to grant. I don't know. Yeah. So the district court, after Dupont lost some of these Bellwether trials, the district court concluded that Dupont was collaterally stopped from continuing to dispute some of these issues with the new plaintiffs. Right. So you have like eighty thousand plaintiffs or whatever. A couple of them win on some issue, and then the answer is Dupont is now has now lost on that issue for for every other case, not just by those people, but by anybody else in this in this group. And this is called non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel. So non-mutual in that it's not identically not identical parties. So and it's offensive, so someone is using it against a defendant. So right, for the plaintiff. Plaintiff one establishes some fact against the defendant. Plaintiff two comes in and wants to rely on that finding right. uh, in plaintiff's two's separate suit against the same defendant. Right. And so do you, teach, do you teach that in Fed courts or? Uh, I think that's a classic Civ Pro question. Yeah. Although, yeah. It, well, uh, it comes up. So, mutual collateral estoppel, that's like the two parties have litigated this. It binds them in the future. That's sort of uncontroversial. And I don't think anybody believes in non mutual defensive collateral estoppel. Two so of the like plaintiffs. DuPont wins lost. one case against one plaintiff, and then they can. Yeah. <laughs> that automatically means they win all the cases against all the other plaintiffs. Yeah. Right. A bunch of people are mad at Walmart. Somebody sues Walmart and loses. So Walmart's immune from future suits. We don't do that. Yeah. Unless it's a, a real class action where, you know, that actually does resolve the, sure. that's a different, that's a different question that would resolve right. the claims of all the, the, the members of the class. But in a 1979 case called Park Lane Hosiery versus Shore, the court said, we will sometimes let you do this offensively against the defendant. And there's like a, balancing test and a question about when it's unfair to the defendant, but Parkland Hosiery opens the door to offensive non-mutual collateral estoppel. And Justice Thomas uh, would be willing to reconsider whether that's appropriate in this case, whether this meets whatever the exceeds the limits of, of whatever that's yeah. okay. And he, I mean, he seems pretty skeptical. Yeah. I mean, he seems, and I, he seems skeptical both of the doctrine generally, 
like I take it, I don't he doesn't say this, but I'm pretty confident that he would not have decided Parkland Hosiery the same way. But even within the sort of Parkland Hosiery framework, there are these sort of pr- pragmatic aspects of balancing tests. You could not reconsider Parkland Hosiery, but say this this goes too far. Yeah. So, and so he thinks there's a due process problem, right? Yeah, among other things. I mean, on the due process side, like what vision of due process does this fit into? Because he's famously been a skeptic of kind of like broad, fuzzy, common law understandings of due process. You know, would yeah, there be I, kind of an originalist grounding, kind of a narrow ver- vision of due process that would let you rule out stuff like this? Or is he kind of being inconsistent? It's a little tricky. I mean, I do think this is procedural due process. And I do think a yeah. pretty a pretty well-grounded form of procedural due process is at a minimum, yeah. you should get a chance to prove that the elements of the offense were yeah. not met. But even with procedural, I don't think he just thinks it's this free-floating thing that lets you kind of say certain procedures are just like kind of unfair, right? Right. No. but I, mean, he, I think he would want something a little bit more grounded than that. Right. But he might think that if there are elements of a tort that you have a right to try to show that the elements were not met. Yeah. Now, the tricky part becomes there are more substantive cases where maybe we define the elements of the tort to go away or something. That doesn't happen here, yeah. so I don't think he has to confront that harder hypo. But you might think it's, it's do you have a right to uh, try to fight that element? Now, the people who believe in offensive collateral estoppel would say, look, DuPont had a chance to try to prove this element was not met. It was in the first trial. So they've gotten their hearing, and just because there are multiple trials doesn't mean they get multiple chances, multiple bites of the apple. On the other hand, the plaintiffs get multiple bites of the apple. So there is a sort of funny dynamic if 20 people sue and the first 18 lose, yeah. and they're not bound by their losses, but then number 19 wins, and suddenly 20 through 80,000 all get to win. Right? That seems like a problem. Yeah. So there's a, it's actually related to the issue we just talked about. So, because the year after Parkland Hosiery, the Supreme Court has to ask, does this same rule apply to the government? If one person sues the government and gets a law declared invalid or unconstitutional, can they do non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel to let all other people sue the government and get the same thing? And the court in a case called United States versus Mendoza says, no, 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 definitely not. This rule can't apply to the government because the government should have a right in every case to try to prove the law is valid. And that case is, at the doctrine, is one of the central cases that people against make against nationwide injunctions the nationwide injunctions are effectively just doing non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel for the whole for everybody yeah and if you can't yeah, do I mean, that it really it, i mean at least you know in a different doctrinal box but clearly raise the same considerations yeah and then one of the leading defenses of nationwide injunctions by uh professor zach clopton uh, northwestern was to say well maybe we should overrule mendoza and say the Parkland Hosiery rule applies to everybody. And so you can do nationwide injunctions whenever you would, would be able to do non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel. Other people say, no, Parkland Hosiery is a mistake, and we don't know when you can do it anyway. So I think this is a great a great QP. I don't know that it's yeah. as, as clean as some of the things the court grants, but it's a great yeah. question. Can I actually uh, use that as a segue just to go back and ask a question about the hamburger mirrors thing? Yeah. Which is just that in a case like that, when you're trying to get that kind of injunction that applies to the law, you know, against enforcement of the law across the state, what are the stakes in the sense that if that injunction is ultimately lifted and the law is ultimately held constitutional, like everyone who violated the law in that interim period could potentially be subject to, you know, I don't exactly know what the penalties are, you know, criminal, civil, I, I, I don't know, but whatever... Like just because there was an injunction in place against a law at the time, if that's later found to be incorrect, wouldn't you still would so you still con- be able to the- be punished for conduct that you did, even if you were relying on that injunction? The conventional view is no. The conventional view is an injunction is a kind of judgment, and so until it's reversed, it's binding, and you have the protection of it. So you can even if you're not a party, even if well, as long as you're covered by the injunction even if you're a non-party government injunction. One of the more interesting claims in the Jonathan Mitchell Rate of Erasure article uh, is that that's false and that a, an injunction, an erroneous injunction yeah. should not be seen as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, I, I mean, that's my, I mean, that is my kind of formalist intuition. Well, but we have these doctrines of like estoppel or reliance. So we sometimes yeah. say like, look, if a court with, you know, if a court's explicitly said, you can do this, and then you fool did this, it's not fair to punish you for doing what the court said you could do. Yeah, but that's very narrow. So for example, if you're in a circuit that says, you know, your 
conduct isn't covered under a criminal statute. Mm-hmm. And then you do the thing and then you're prosecuted. And then the Supreme Court is like, oh yeah, that circuit precedent was wrong. You're definitely covered. You go to jail. Yes. Right? Like, how is that different? Well, it's a little different in that like a general statement of precedent versus a specific command to the defendant. Like the judge has said to the defendant. I mean, so it, and, and says it's, don't enforce it, right? That means you can't go around arresting people for it in the meantime. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't say you can't enforce it in the future when the injunction no longer exists, right? I mean, I'm actually not sure what what they yeah. what the injunction say. But I mean, the injunction to the extent that the injunction no longer is in force, it can't have any continued force. So I assume that what it would mean is, hey, state officials responsible for enforcing this law, you can't do anything, right? That isn't really the same thing as saying like, hey, law, you don't exist right now. I mean, so look, I, I'm i with you, but on the other hand, when and, – and I think uh, – Jonathan Mitchell's with you. I think Michael Morley is on the other side and there are some cases on the other side. When the Supreme Court decided in Janus that unions were not allowed to con- collect agency fees, right, from, their, from non-members – uh, a bunch of people sued and said, hey, for the past three years, you've been collecting agency fees from tons of non-members. They bring a class action, like the day after Janus, to try to get was back. It, why was it just three years? Hadn't it been going on for decades? The statute of limitations. Statute of limitations, okay. Yeah. So within the tort of property statute of limitations. And in every circuit, and I thought those claims should succeed. Uh, Eugene Volokh and I wrote an article saying those claims should probably succeed. That these people should get back... Yeah, what they were doing, you know, what they were doing was unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court had made clear it was unconstitutional. But every circuit disagreed, and every circuit said, if you acted in good faith, in good faith reliance on a judicial decision that was sense overruled, you can't be sued. They didn't explain why the criminal law thing is different. But that was a Supreme Court decision, right? A Supreme Court decision overruling a previous Supreme Court decision. I think it is different if you're relying on a Supreme Court decision, at least the kind of more general principle in criminal law. And not just mm-hmm. in the kind of federal context is, you know, you have to reasonably rely on something and it's not reasonable to rely on a district court or a intermediate appellate court, but, you know, a, a final ruling by, you know, the kind of chief, you know, either like the, the attorney general responsible for enforcing it saying they won't enforce it or the, the highest court saying it's not covered. Those are reasonable to rely on. Yeah. Although now the problem is reasonable is going to be sort of endogenous to the rule, right? So if the, if the, if the rule is that while there's an injunction in place, your conduct is protected. And if you think about it, like a lot of these injunctions are not very valuable if if you're everything you do during the injunction is sort of like under penalty of under penalty of uh, reversal or something. Yeah. If I get a you know temporary restraining order or something and it tells you you can't, I don't know. But it means I mean it would mean that you can't be arrested for that time period during the time period. You can't, potentially, they can't shut your restaurant down. Right, but potentially there could yeah. be massive ruinous penalties afterwards. Yes. Yeah. Depending right. on the law, right? I mean, depending on the law. I mean, some. Some yeah. laws might not impose retrospective, right? But so, so, but so, so imagine I have a, imagine I have a, I mean, imagine I really am covered by the law, and I bring an injunction and saying I have irreparable injury, right? If I have to shut down for a week, like my business will collapse, yeah. And I get the injunction, and they say, say, you know, good news, <laughs> I agree, you have irreparable injury, and I say, well, this is not very helpful because if I operate under this injunction, I'm still risking the ruinous liability to shut down my whole restaurant, so. Operating is still really risky. Yeah, I might want to appeal to the Supreme Court or something so I can get a guarantee I can operate. Yeah, but I can't appeal because I won. <laughs> and so then, where, where do I go to to get my irreparable injury repaired? Yeah, nowhere. Yeah, I don't know. That's tricky. That is tricky. I mean, but I mean, if you're correct, if the that the law is unconstitutional, then that you should ultimately prevail later too, right? That's at least the formal answer, even if yes. that's not satisfying. Yes. Right. So then where this really matters is in all the cases that are in the zone of ambiguity. Like, I mean, this is really just very similar to the strategy in, in uh, SB8. It's not a coincidence that they're emanating from the same person, the same article. It's, a, it's an article with a lot of ripple effects. Yeah. It's an amazing article. Yeah. Okay. So that yeah, took us a little afield of where we were, but I think, was that everything we wanted to say about that? I think so. From denial? I saw a post, now I'm trying to trouble finding it, I think it was by Abby Gluck on balkanization, Abby Gluck's professor at Yale, praising Justice Thomas's opinion here, just noting that this is one of the first opinions where a justice showed interest in the MDL process. Mm-hmm. Like The MDL process is huge. Yeah. I mean, it, it involves like billions of dollars every year. Billions of dollars, and the Supreme Court basically ignores it. There are very few Supreme Court cases about any of the issues that come up there. 
you know, a cynic might say it's not a coincidence. Uh, it's like some area that's safe from the Supreme Court justices, so we can. But just noting that you know, MDL has grown, and it's good that the justices are sort of noticing that, and maybe they'll decide it's working fine and doesn't need any intervention. Maybe it does, but that was an interesting point. Yeah. All right. I think that brings us to our opinion in Atchison. Yeah. Okay. So we do like talking about opinions, for better or for worse. This one is going to be quite short, but we do have some separate writings that we can talk about. Well, let's talk about the uh, the actual majority opinion uh, that we got. And just as a reminder, this case is about the one of these ADA testers, someone uh, who is disabled, uh, Ms. Laufer, and she goes around and looks at the websites for hotels all across the country. Um, and sometimes she says she has some theoretical, hypothetical plan to go visit that area. And then if their uh, websites don't comply with a rule requiring them to provide information about disability uh, status of their accommodations, she and you know her lawyers sue, and then they offer you know a ten thousand dollar settlement option. And you know this has been a big cottage industry uh, for her attorneys. That happened in this case, sued uh, this particular hotel, but then things got kind of complicated, right? It turns out her one of her attorneys, not the attorney involved in this case, but one of her attorneys involved in different cases, was doing uh, some unethical stuff, got sanctioned. That sanction order did have some, cast some doubt on uh, one of her attorneys in, in this case uh, below. And then, you know, after, so after cert is granted, cases, you know, sort of in the middle of the briefing process, she decides, I just need to get rid of all these cases and goes around kind of dismissing them all, including the one that was before the court. Yeah. And so, you know, at the argument, so that, I mean, everybody agrees that makes the case moot, right? Moot, there's right. no kind of live controversy. And the normal thing to do with a moot case is just to kind of get rid of it, right? But the complication here is here, that's a jurisdictional issue. The, the issue that the court had granted was standing, right? Whether a plaintiff actually, uh, an ADA tester like this who doesn't have any immediate plans to go actually stay at one of these rooms has Article Three standing to bring suit. That is also a jurisdictional issue. And the mm -hmm. court has said that if there's like multiple jurisdictional issues, uh, they don't have to do mootness first. They can right. do standing first. They can't do the merits instead of doing jurisdiction. You got to do jurisdiction first. But among jurisdictional issues, you can do either one. And so the argument, uh, a lot of it really boiled down to trying to figure out whether they should just go ahead and resolve the standing question on which they had granted cert or just decide to uh, punt uh, the case on uh, mootness and save that for another day. Yep. And so by a nine to zero vote on the judgment, a seven to two vote on the opinion, the court decides to decide mootness first, right? They say we can address them in either order. On the one hand, Ms. Laufer says mootness is easy and standing is hard. On the other hand, Atchison Hotels says the standing issue is the reason we took the case. And although Laufer's case is dead, the circuit split is very much alive. Uh, I like that. So what circuit we do, split created by Laufer herself, right? Yes, exactly. And the court says, we are sensitive to Atchison's concerns about lit lit litigants manipulating the jurisdiction of this court. We are not convinced, however, that Laufer abandoned her case in an effort to evade our review. She voluntarily dismissed her pending ADA cases after a lower court sanctioned her lawyer, and she's represented that she will not file any others. Laufer's case against Atchison is moot, and we dismiss it on that ground. We emphasize, however, that we might exercise our discretion differently in a future case. Vacated as moot. Okay. Uh, yeah. Did this surprise you? No. Yeah, I, I think that probably was the way it was going to come out. I did think there might have been a little bit more interest in resolving the standing question. So Justice Thomas is going to say he wanted to do that uh, and conclude there was no standing. I, I don't know. I thought the chief actually seemed pretty concerned about the kind of manipulation of the court's jurisdiction. Yes. And so I thought he, you might have been able to peel him off. Yes. There. I thought there would be a non-zero number of justices doing that. And I would have predicted the chief would be one of them. But but on the other hand, the way the, you know, the, the, the last paragraph, that paragraph is sort of carefully worded, I think, to satisfy somebody who has those concerns by implying if you are manipulating our jurisdiction, that's very bad. And if we think you're manipulating our jurisdiction, we're not going to fall for it. Yeah. But in this case, we're going to give it a pass because we think you're not. Yeah. But don't try this again. 
Yeah, although it's unclear why that should be the dispositive thing. I thought that Atchison's attorney, Adam Yukowski, who we've talked about a lot on the show, Substack, made pretty good arguments for why it would be hard for another one of these cases to get to the court mm-hmm. if they don't resolve it now. You know, basically, you know, someone would have to, a, a sort of complicated series of events would have to happen. And you'd have to have a defendant who is really willing to go all the way uh, with a case. Um, you know, and so, you know, it may be a while before this gets back. Maybe it won't ever get back. But for whatever reason, the court didn't find that dispositive. Yeah. Well, they may also think that the combination of this opinion and Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, which does address the standing issue, might also be enough guidance to lower courts that they'll back off. Even in lower courts where there's, you know, circuit precedent. <sighs> I guess the district courts in those cases probably can't. Yeah. But. I mean, I'm not sure, but but maybe, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. So well, two different directions that the separate opinions are going to go, right? So just as Thomas would go further, he would decide the standing question, and he explains at length why he thinks that Lafford does not have standing. Did this surprise you? You know, Justice Thomas is sometimes the the wild card pro standing vote. You know, in, in cases like Spokio and TransUnion, he has a very he has the broadest pro standing view on the court. He's sort of dissented from these like constitutional yeah. limitations on standing, but here he's he's leading the anti-standing charge. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought that through very carefully. I didn't. I didn't think had a prior that he was going to do something pro-standing in this case. So it didn't. This one didn't surprise me. But I can. I can. You know. I can see how there maybe was an argument there. Yeah. Well, but I mean, this case I, does have a real. I mean, it, it, I mean, this case seems to have a strong ideological valence. Yeah, the sort of transunion and yeah. Spokio. Yeah. So it didn't surprise me because there's an 11th Circuit judge, uh, Kevin Newsom, who I think the world of, who has two major standing opinions as a lower court judge, one of which is a Justice Thomas-style anti-Lujan pro-statutory standing opinion, saying you know Article 3 is not a basis for striking down statutory causes of action. So he's with Justice Thomas in that prong. And then he also had a Laufer opinion in the 11th Circuit Laufer case, saying, but this is different because this is essentially a plaintiff trying to take the executive power upon themselves to act as a private attorney general, which is bad because we have an actual attorney general who's part of the executive branch uh, is in charge of enforcing federal law. And is and it because just, the rule comes from a, the, the, the cause of action kind of comes from a, the thing that's being alleged as a violation comes from a rule rather than comes from something created by an act of Congress? I, and it's also that it doesn't create any damages or any other private right in the plaintiff like the idea is that yeah. that uh, and i'm not sure i totally follow this exactly but the idea is that the ada has has not actually created some like legal right yeah that, that is protected here and yeah maybe there's a little bit of the rule thing and a little bit of the remedy thing i confess when justice thomas wrote it out i, I was confused why these were standing arguments rather than merits arguments because some of them felt like merits arguments. But. Yeah, I mean, it's, and so he sort of says, you know, this is different than the court's precedent, Haven's Realty, right? Where there the court said that testers, you know, where you have, you know, these people trying to enforce civil rights laws, right? Right. And you have white testers, black testers, they go talk to people renting property and then the the renting agents tell the black testers, oh, you know, we don't have any, right. We don't have any uh, rooms for you to rent. The court had said they, those testers can sue to enforce the Fair Housing Act, even if they had no intent to actually rent the property, right? They're just right. testers. And the, the theory there being that they are being, they are nonetheless themselves being discriminated against by being given this false information, right? They're experiencing discrimination. So I feel like a lot of like what was kind of being argued about in this case, like on the merits of the standing issue was about like, is the injury just not having the room ultimately, or is the injury not having the information necessary to determine whether they have the room? Because like, it was like far from clear whether there was an actual substantive violation of the ADA, like maybe the hotel you know, didn't have to have disabled rooms, disabled accommodations, right? They didn't. But here, it was just about this informational requirement designed to kind of help facilitate the actual underlying protections of the ADA. 
Right. And so just as Thomas says, the difference is that the Fair Housing Act expressly says you have a right to information. It expressly prohibits representing to a person because of race that a dwelling is not available when such dwelling is in fact available. Yeah. And the ADA is different because it doesn't have that right. Yeah. That Would does, it be different if the ADA just said it's discrimination to not give people information that is necessary for them to make an informed decision if they're disabled? It's a little different, right? Because you're not they're not giving false information to one person and you know right. discriminating in who gets the information. They're just not giving information right. to that that disabled people might want. Yeah, here's why I'm, I'm, I have trouble tracking it. So, just as Thomas says, even if there were such a right, because there's this regulation, that wouldn't be enough because Laufer doesn't have a violation of her own rights with regard to that information because she has no intention of going to Maine. Yeah, but that 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 would seem to resolve the Haven's Realty thing too, right? I think so, but is it because it's on the internet instead of in person? Yeah, is it because I mean he still thinks there's, there's not discrimination, there's not an injury, there is an injury if you're if you're actually discriminated against, but it's not. And, yeah, I don't I don't totally understand. Now again, I do think an injunction might be an inappropriate remedy in a case where you have no intention of visiting it because what, yeah. you know, there's nothing to enjoin. And there is no money damages under the ADA uh, here. Right. And I'm not sure maybe there is money damages under the Fair Housing Act. So maybe that distinguishes it. But so on the whole, just as Thomas's opinion convinced me, the standing issue is kind of hard. Yeah. So <laughs> the court was right to not resolve it. Although, I mean, it, look, if the court had resolved it and we had more opinions on it, we had a, you know, a dissent fleshing it out. We had, you know, concurrences, right. you, had, you know, like maybe it would, maybe it would still seem hard, but maybe we would be less confused. Right. So, and once as Thomas has written the opinion also, like if you agree with it, some majority may, then it wouldn't be hard to just say, okay, sign me up. Yeah. But um, it, so you were not, you know, you're not ready to sign up. No, I mean, I will. I did not spend as much time trying to think it through as I hope the Supreme Justices did. Yeah, but but it, it doesn't track as easily as I thought it would. Yeah, it does. It does to me just turn a lot on like how we conceptualize like what exactly this cause of action is, what exactly the violation is. Does it create a right? Who does? Who has a right? Like what? Like what is it? And that does seem like a merits issue. Okay, then we have Justice Jackson. Yeah, so she's got this, this hobby horse. <laughs> and this is yeah. something that I used to be a thing I like talked about a lot, uh, podcasted about and and tweeted about and and now like I feel like it's gone mainstream, which is Munsingware. <laughs> yeah, you were you were into Munsingware before it was cool. Yeah, now I'm kinda over it, but and we'll talk about why in a second. But Munsingware is this doctrine where the court sometimes will say, like, if a case becomes moot on the way to us on the way to Supreme Court review, then sometimes we will, you know, exercise our discretion to, you know, take the lower court opinion off the books to vacate the lower court opinion. Right. And in particular, sort of moot through no fault of the person who wanted to appeal it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it's sort of related to the court's initial concern about like manipulating our jurisdiction or something like lower court is something dubious. Somebody wants us to review it. If we lost our chance to review it, you know, then maybe the lower court opinion is kind of suspect and should be taken off the books. Yeah. And I mean, that tends to be, you know, it's something that they don't do automatically anytime there's some pending cert petition that becomes moot. I mean, certainly not. They do it sometimes. Uh, and it does seem correlated with cases where you can strongly suspect that the majority would have wanted to ultimately overrule what mm -hmm. the lower court did. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked about in the past, the case uh, that I wrote my Ninth Circuit case, I wrote my Larview case comment on uh, Harper, you know, kind of out there, Reinhardt ruling, kind of really taking you know, First Amendment law for students in kind of a weird direction. Very mm -hmm. strong reason to think the court would have, you know, reversed. The case becomes moot, student graduates from from high school, and the court uh, issues a Munsingware order. But you can find other cases where it's kind of just a ordinary case and the court isn't interested in granting the Munsingware order, granting the Munsingware relief. Yeah, you might think the Munsingware relief should have a test similar to the Hamburger Mary's test that if we weren't going to grant cert anyway, there's no reason to, to vacate it because right to appeal has not really been lost because it wasn't going to be there anyway. But if we were, then we're more likely yeah. to vacate it. 
Yeah, and that's not a crazy way to think about it. But so uh, let's get there in a second. So Justice Jackson, for whatever reason, has made this an issue that she cares a lot about. So earlier this year in March, there was a case called Chapman versus Doe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that case, the court did a Munsingware order, it granted a petition, vacated the judgment, uh, remanded with instructions uh, to dismiss the case as moot. That was a case that had challenged some abortion restrictions below, and then it became effectively, it, you know, what Dobbs happened while it was pending and, mm-hmm. you know, got rid of the constitutional right to abortion. And then the parties agreed to to dismiss the case on the condition that they were able to seek Munsingware relief. And the court, you know, everybody agreed to do that, uh, except for Justice Jackson, who said, in that case, I'm concerned that contemporary practice relating to so-called Munsingware vacators has drifted away from the doctrine's foundational moorings. And her view, as I seem to understand it, is not exactly the view that you just articulated, that this is kind of like a merits test. Okay. Would we want to articulate it? It's like a more of a fairness test. Like, yeah, yes, it's, it's or like, both. it's, it's, yeah. I mean, that could be relevant to it, but she says, this is, you know, a form of equitable relief. It's not automatic and there have to be kind of extraordinary circumstances. She says, we have to hold the line and limit the availability of Munsingware vacature to truly exceptional cases. We can't just do this willy nilly. Does that, should we care about this? Yeah, sure. I mean, I feel like there is an ideological overlay to it, which is the Supreme Court, the majority of the Supreme Court has a lot of opinions other things are wrong, and it wants to preserve its ability to supervise those and not let people get away, let cases get away from it. Justice Jackson probably on average thinks that those decisions are right because she's not in step with the court's majority. So of course she wants to take a tool out of the majority's toolbox, right? So that's why she's doing it. I think so. Outcome oriented, yeah. Really? Sorry, is that? No, it's fine. <laughs> just, you wouldn't. You wouldn't normally buy into that explanation of uh, some conservative justices' commitment to some you know jurisdictional procedural thing. Certainly not so willingly and easily. <laughs> you were just you basically. You're just like she only does this because she wants to make it harder for the majority to do stuff. Not only. No, I was trying. To, I was trying to both sides it. The majority. She might be right that Munsingware is a sort of like weird, a weird equitable power that the court kind of invented. I'm just saying the reason the court believes in it is because they are thinking about all the willful lower court judges they want to stop, and they don't. They're happy to to not worry about procedural niceties and trying to stop them. And then she has a strong reason to care about the procedural niceties here, but maybe not. So it may also overlap. Or I'll try. I'll try to be more. Justice Jackson, when she was a district judge, was one of the leading defenders of like the nationwide injunction. Mm. She has this very long opinion about how outrageous it is to suggest that she might lack the jurisdiction to like enjoin conduct nationwide. She's in the district court that relies heavily on this like lower court decisions are presumptively correct, you know. And if you don't like it, appeal it, but they're presumptively correct. And once they're presumptively correct, everybody should follow them. And that's one of her moves here is to say lower court decisions are presumptively correct and just since they haven't been appealed, that doesn't make them unlikely to be correct because they can't be appealed doesn't make them unlikely to be correct. So maybe she's just consistently pursuing her kind of strong judicial supremacy in a way, like even for lower court judges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where it goes from. Okay. Thank you for adding Is that, better? Uh, that, that nuance. Okay. But so we were just talking about her previous uh, opinion now. Um, this is a longer one where she's going to get a little bit deeper into her views on uh, Munsingware relief, Munsingware vacatur. Yeah. Can you kind of flesh out her argument here? Yeah. Well, so her argument is vacator should not follow automatically for mootness, first of all, because equity involves doing things case by case. And moreover, because lower court decisions are presumptively correct. And so vacating them is, you know, presumptively wrong unless there's some special reason to do so. In general, we have a lot of precedent. And then therefore Munsingware can only exist as like a special equitable exception to those two. Those two principles would lead you to, to, to not Munsingware, right? And so you can only do it when there's something especially unfair about the way you got here. You have to show what harm other than having to accept the law as the lower court stated it flows from the inability to appeal the lower court decision. She does an interesting study of like Munsingware itself where the you know, the harm was actually one of these uh, collateral estoppel type problems where yeah. 
uh, the inability. Where the court to actually did, didn't grant Munsingware relief. Yeah, like the case that created the the term is like a case where they were like, no. Wait, is that right? Doesn't the, the court doesn't Munsingware say that the court the government slept slept on its rights? Anyway, so she would limit the availability of Munsingware relief to those kinds of like pretty unusual specific circumstances where there's something something going on that creates the unfairness. Not just that it's unfair that you couldn't appeal, you know, your the respondent happened to die or something like that or dropped their yeah. case, but that there's some reason that apart from having lost, there's something unusually bad about having this opinion still be out there. Yeah. Okay. And here's why I wonder how much this really matters now, despite Great. having been interested in this. So to the extent the dispute is really moot, right? The the sort of opinion below, the judgment below doesn't really matter, right? The judgment doesn't matter for the most sure. part, right? And so to the extent it matters, it matters as precedent. Yeah. Although again, there, there are these preclusion cases where the yeah. judgment might, might matter, but, but okay. So yes, I yeah. agree. Mostly matters as precedent. Mostly as precedent. But then if it's just as precedent, whether it's vacated or not, I mean, certainly the Court of Appeals can just do the same thing again. I mean, maybe it matters in cases where it goes back to the Court of Appeals and there's like a different panel and they get to... And it matters I mean, the district courts do in the interim. Yeah, yeah. That, that's certainly true. But the vacated opinion is still going to exist as persuasive precedent to the district courts, right? Sure. I guess I just don't totally know how much of a difference in the world it makes when the opinion is vacated or not. Well, so this would be an interesting, okay, I would say this would be an interesting study. This would not be an interesting enough study for me to do, but it would be an interesting enough study for me to read if somebody else wants to do it. We to look at this, right? There are a set of Munsingware cases, and you could look and see, you know, there's a, a, pre, a pre-grant split, and then the court Munsingwares, and then what happens. Yeah. My right. guess is, that what I think of as like the canonical Munsingware cases, like Al-Mari, that like war on terror case in the Fourth Circuit that, you know, was a back and forth from the court and eventually I think got Munsingwared are cases where the court is somehow trying to send a signal about which side it's on in addition to the Munsingware. And like yeah. this would be an example. Yeah. Like if you're at the first circuit and you get this case back, surely you decide the case the other way. I would suspect so. Yeah. And so I bet that the Munsingwares the court is interested in are the ones where in fact, the opinion will not come out the same way the second time around. Yeah. But just to be clear, some of the folks who concurred in the Munsingware relief you know, presumably would not concur in the standing, you know, what Justice Thomas wants in standing. That's true. But like, I mean, I'm not certain, but, it, you know, we've right. got Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. But they might also be happy for lower courts to do it anyway, and then the Supreme Court never to take it again. Like, they might care less about because it doesn't create bad precedent, even if the, yeah. the outcome is the same. Right. They don't care so much about the mislaufers of the world and their ability to bring thousands of lawsuits, but more, more anti-standing cases you know, in the U.S. reports, just sort of pile up and create more anti-standing pressure. So you might be happy to, to see this go away. All right. Well, here we don't really have a feisty debate about Munsingware. The majority's analysis uh, of this question, it's an opinion by uh, Justice Barrett, by the way. I don't know if we said that. Majority's analysis of the question is two sentences. It says, Justice Jackson objects to this disposition, urging us to instead leave the First Circuit's judgment in place. Our Munsingware practice is well settled. And then, you know, cites a bunch of Munsingware cases and then does a see also to uh, the Supreme Court practice treatise. We decline Justice Jackson's invitation to reconsider it. (laughs) Just like (laughs) so little interest in this. Yeah. Could have been more dismissive by putting it in a footnote, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> or not having the citation yeah or just not saying anything yeah like i uh so i like the justice jackson i think every new justice should have a couple of these weird hobby horses yeah i think that's good that's healthy i remember when justice stevens was on the court he had this hobby horse about a sort of related about a, about a case called martin versus united states oh yeah the uh, sanctioning of ifp repeat ifp filers yes so if you fi- if you repeatedly file frivolous petitions Informal papyrus without paying your filing fees. After like three strikes, the court deprives you of your ability to file IFP. You can still file, you just got to pay for it from now on. And that's called martinizing. Uh, the court martinizes you. And every time, Justice Stevens would dissent. There are like tons of these orders in the orders list. And then, you know, it's like the reporter's office adds in, but Justice Stevens dissents. Well, that's great. The Justice Stevens had like an anti Martin hobby horse. I didn't really agree. 
but he was kind of he kind of had a point and it was good it's good to register like that there's something a little weird about this yeah so i hope i hope justice jackson just descends from every munsingware case or concurs whatever just like you know munsingware justice jackson's against it i think that's nice yeah and here she doesn't formally dissent right she yeah. she does concur in the judgment because she says you know, I concur in the judgment because the basis of precedent, despite my own views of this practice, because respondents voluntarily dis- voluntary dismissal is the sort of unilateral action that we have previously deemed adequate for vacature. Yes, but still. Yeah. Anyway, I hope she makes this a thing. We will see. It's already been a thing a couple times this year, so probably we'll yeah. we'll uh, be the last bored of it. on this. Yeah. But make it. She might get bored of it. Yeah. But it is now you know this Munsingware is now mainstream. Uh, it's no longer this nerdy, obscure part of Supreme Court practice that I used to know a little bit about. So I need to find so another one. I need to go digging in the uh, treatise yeah. and some other one that, you know. What's next? Everybody on Twitter doesn't already know about. You should go after relisting or rescheduling. The great John Elwood is up on relisting. Rescheduling is a little bit more obscure. Yeah. Um, you should be what against about it. straight lining? Do you remember this? Uh, curve yeah, lining. Yeah. Straight lining and curve lining is like consolidating related cases. And yeah, it's like when there's like sometimes when they like they know that there's like kind of related cases, related issues, like someone, I know the clerk's office or somebody will just kind of like lump them together and they could make a case disappear from the yeah. you know, discuss list to disappear listing for extended periods while they're waiting for the other case, which is straight line. I don't remember the difference between straight lining and curve lining. One is related parties and one is related issues, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah, that's that sounds or same plausible. issue or related issue or something. One is more um, connected to the other. Yeah, I feel like that hasn't really been uh, plumbed. Yeah. All right. Let me. I don't even know if there's anything in the treatise about that. We'll find out. Okay, I've got no more to say about that, and that's good because we're running out of time. Any final words, Will? No. Take us out. Thanks very much for listening. Despite our frequent delays and our unscheduled and unpredictable nature, if you like the show, please rate and review on the Apple Podcast Store or wherever else you get the podcast and do other things to boost our listenership. You know, our audience grows slowly but steadily, but it would be great to have it grow uh, more quickly and larger. We do think that, you know, there are a lot of people that would uh, benefit from our obscure occasional insights into weirdness of Supreme Court practice. Visit our website, dividedargument.com, where we have transcripts of the episodes, uh, usually pretty soon after they come out, uh, if you don't like to listen regularly. Store.dividedargument.com for merchandise with our logo and podcast cover. You can send us an email, pod at dividedargument.com. We do read all those. Sometimes we respond. Not always great about that. And you can leave us a voicemail, uh, some famous ones of which have been in song form, by calling 314-649-3790. Thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all of our endeavors. Thanks to the Supreme Court for issuing an opinion promptly about something we wanted to talk about. And if we don't record an episode for a long time, it's because Will has gotten really mad at me because I keep creating too many Supreme Court Justice Muppets. That was funny. (laughs) 